On Friday, June 3, 1949, the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that the Federal Communications Commission had eased its eight-year-old ban against editorializing by radio stations. It reported that Whitaker Chambers told how former State Department official Alger Hiss fed government secrets through him to a pre-war Soviet spy ring. The baseball films It Happens Every Spring, starring Ray Milland, Gene Peters, and Paul Douglas, and The Stratton Story, starring Jimmy Stewart and June Allison, were playing in American movie theaters. The comics included Little Orphan Annie, Steve Canyon, Rex Morgan, M.D., Mary Worth, and Joe Palooka, and at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Dragnet made its debut on the NBC radio network, starring Jack Webb, Barton Yarborough, and Raymond Burr. Where have you gone, Jack Webb? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Jack Webb was born on April 2, 1920. He died on December 23, 1982. Here are a few notes and Bits of information about Jack Webb and his legacy. Dragnet premiered on NBC Radio in 1949. It premiered on NBC Television in 1952. Multiple sources say that Webb and Mark Scott, of Home Run Derby fame, were teamed up trying to acquire the Los Angeles franchise in the Continental League when Scott died unexpectedly on July 13, 1960, at 45 years old. The Continental League, which never got off the ground, is a fascinating story and subject of at least two or three books, but that's another story for another time. There are at least two books about Jack Webb. My Name's Friday by Michael J. Hady and Just the Facts, Ma'am, the authorized biography of Jack Webb, creator of Dragnet, Adam 12 and Emergency by Daniel Moyer and Eugene Alvarez. Webb wrote The Badge, the inside story of one of America's great police departments, 1958, and it looks like that one may have been reissued in 2005 with some additional contribution by James Elroy. Webb is best known for Dragnet, but he also produced Adam-12 and Emergency. He had lengthy careers in radio and film. His iconic character, Sergeant Joe Friday, was revived on film and television in the 1980s and the 2000s. He used a stock company of character actors who were familiar faces to television viewers. Before Dragnet, Webb starred as Pat Novak for Hire. Webb starred in the radio and film versions of Pete Kelly's Blues. Both were set in Kansas City in the early 1920s 
and present a combination of crime drama and music. The 1951 radio series was followed by the 1955 film that was also produced and directed by Jack Webb. And the Jack Webb Awards honor individuals in the Los Angeles community who have demonstrated outstanding devotion to law enforcement. The awards are presented by the Los Angeles Police Museum, which opened in 2002. You can learn more about the Jack Webb Awards at jackwebbawards.laphs.org. If somebody mentions Jack Webb, I think of Dragnet, and I suppose in particular I think of the Dragnet that was on NBC television from 1967 to 1970. But there was the radio version of Dragnet. There was the 1950s television version of Dragnet. There was the 1987 film starring Dan Aykroyd as Joe Friday's nephew and Tom Hanks as his partner. There was the 2003-2004 television reboot of Dragnet starring Ed O'Neill from executive producer Dick Wolf. In a moment, I'll take a closer look at Jack Webb's radio career. When Where Have You Gone, Jack Webb continues after a short break. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now, back to the episode. Before Dragnet made its radio debut on June 3, 1949, Jack Webb had starred in five other radio shows starting in 1946, most notably Pat Novak for Hire. He was already a radio star before Dragnet got its start. For much of what I'm going to talk about in terms of Jack Webb and his early radio career, I'm going to use as a resource John Dunning's Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio. It was first published in 1976 under the title Tune In Yesterday. It was re-released in 1998 as On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio. There's a quote on the back of the 1998 book that says, John Dunning's new work is the deepest and richest mine of information yet plumbed in the field of old time radio. It may well arrive at classic status, not only for its magnitude, but for its power to entertain through the vigor and acuity of its assessments. It is the only encyclopedia I know that can be read for pleasure as well as research. That was written by Norman Corwin. 
the first program of the five that came before Dragnet is one out of seven, broadcast early in 1946 on the ABC Network's West Coast stations. It came before Pat Novak for Hire or the Jack Webb Show. The straightforward concept was to focus on one story from the past seven days. It was a 15-minute show. There were only seven of them, and there seemed to be four of the seven available to be listened to today at oldtimeradiodownloads.com. The next of the five is about as far away from Dragnet as you can get. It's the Jack Webb Show, described as madcap comedy variety, broadcast in the spring of 1946, also on ABC's West Coast stations. Written by Dick Breen, there's at least one episode currently available on the internet, and if you are familiar with Jack Webb as Joe Friday, it is 180 degrees difference. Uh, It sounds a little bit like the Stan Freeberg show or something you might hear on Prairie Home Companion. The old-time radio download site calls both One Out of Seven and the Jack Webb show the work of Webb, Breen, Jim Moser, and Gil Dowd. I'll have more to say about Richard Breen later in this program. Pat Novak for Hire came next, 1946-1947. Dunning says that with Pat Novak for Hire, Webb was propelled to national prominence. Radio Spirits released a collection of Pat Novak for Hire episodes in 2012. The collection includes a program guide written by Elizabeth McLeod. Elizabeth McLeod is a journalist, author, and broadcast historian. She received the 2005 Ray Stanich Award for Excellence in Broadcasting History Research from the Friends of Old Time Radio. And in this guide, she has done a nice job of describing build-up to Pat Novak for Hire, describing the program, and giving a sense of how this fits into Jack Webb's evolution, his and Richard Breen's, moving towards Dragnet. With his having become nationally known, Webb moved to Hollywood, but he had no rights to Pat Novak for hire, and the show continued with another actor. Webb and Breen created Johnny Madero, Pier 23, broadcast on Mutual in 1947. It's essentially the same show as Pat Novak for Hire, with a different title. Johnny Madero, Pier 23, lasted only a matter of weeks. Then came Jeff Reagan, Investigator, broadcast July 10 to December 18, 1948, and October 5, 1949 to August 27, 1950. It's described as the transition show away from Novak and into Dragnet, with Webb playing the role well into 1949. As Dragnet settled into its long run on NBC, 
Webb took the lead in one more radio program, Pete Kelly's Blues, from July 4 to September 19 in 1951. Each show included two jazz music numbers. Webb was a great jazz music aficionado and a film version of Pete Kelly's Blues, starring Webb, came out in 1955. By 1955, Dragnet was on radio and television. There had been a film version in 1954. Webb was a star, but when Webb was working his way up to Dragnet, he was moving smoothly between radio and film. During the years 1948 to 1951, Webb appeared in nine films, including He Walked by Night in 1948 and Sunset Boulevard in 1950. He was fourth billed in the cast of The Men from 1950, behind Marlon Brando, Teresa Wright, and Everett Sloan, and immediately ahead of Richard Erdman. There's also You're in the Navy Now from 1951. In that one, Webb is billed eighth, in a cast led by Gary Cooper, and again, immediately ahead of Dick Erdman. I found an interesting connection between Jack Webb and Blake Edwards, the great film director. Blake Edwards' early career also incorporated radio. A post at Radio Spirits on July 26, 2018, supports what I read elsewhere, that Edwards wrote a script that made its way to Webb and got Webb into radio, or maybe it was just a good radio role for Webb. You can find that at radiospirits.info. Jack Webb had a great career, but that's still only part of the story. I'll explore more of the personal side of Jack Webb with author Dan Moyer when Where Have You Gone Jack Webb continues after a short break. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. As Where Have You Gone, Jack Webb continues, I'm pleased to be joined by Dan Moyer, co-author of Just the Facts, Ma'am, the authorized biography of Jack Webb, and co-producer of the Dragnet DVD series. Tell me about the... What you wanted to capture about Jack from the personal side in the context of how you got so immersed in his story as to co-write the authorized biography. To answer that, uh, we have to look at a couple different things here. First thing is Jack Webb was a very complex person and a very multi-talented individual, obviously. So by doing a book on his life story, I knew it was going to be a very complex thing to put together because he was a very diverse person. One of the biggest things is uh, we wanted to show his personal side, not just his career. His career was is what made him, but we wanted to show what was the man behind that, what was the driving force behind that, why did he 
do what he did. And we wanted to show uh, a lot of his personal side from his childhood all the way up through his 62 years of life. So that's the perspective we took from this. And a lot of these stories in the book are from people who, like classmates, neighbors, uh, Army Air Corps buddies, people that were right there in the trenches with him all the way through. So these are stories from people who lived it with him. And, you know, we started from his childhood and went all the way up. And then we started interviewing uh, a lot of his colleagues who worked with him on radio and television and through his whole career. So that's the perspective that this book shows versus just these are the dates of the shows, this is what the shows were about. He grew up through the Depression, and I know he wanted to attend the University of Southern California, but he still has a USC connection. Is that correct? Absolutely. He USC was his team. He loved USC, and he so badly wanted to go there, and he received an art scholarship. However, they were very, uh, very impoverished, and so he had to take a job, and he had to turn that down, which was a big good for us in what he did, but bad for him at the time because he really wanted to be an artist and or a musician, and a lot of people don't realize that. If he would have been able to carry a tune and play an instrument, we would never be talking about Dragnet, I can tell you that. Can you amplify some on, on the importance of music in his life? Absolutely. Uh, we could do an hour program on that. When he was probably five or six years old, he lived in the same apartment complex with a jazz musician, and he was just fascinated with that. And in junior high, he used to carry a cornet around. He couldn't play it, but he wanted to be a musician. So that carried on throughout his entire life. And uh, a good story that uh, I've heard quite often, you know, Jackie's been like a mom to me for years and years and years, which would be uh, Jack's wife. And she would often tell me how they would have these dinner parties. And she said whatever musician was in town would be over at our house that night. He was friends with everybody from Ella Fitzgerald to Peggy Lee to Louis Armstrong, and the list goes on and on. So he surrounded himself with a lot of musician friends, and he was very close with a lot of these people. So he always had that in the back of his head that he wanted to be a musician, and since he couldn't, he did the next best thing. He made a movie about it. And, and a short-lived radio show. Yes. There's another individual whose name keeps coming up, and I believe he goes back quite a ways in, in Jack's life and career, and that's Herman Saunders. How is he involved in the Jack Webb story? He was one of Jack Webb's closest friends. He and Bob Forward were like two of Jack's closest friends throughout most of his life. Herm was a musician piano player in the Army Air Corps Band, and he was was uh, one of the best musicians that they ever had. He was just phenomenal. In fact, the story that his son told me is Dave Brubeck was a classmate of Herm's, and Dave Brubeck came up to Herm and said, Herm, I wish I could play like you. Now, to take that a step further, when Jack was trying to get started in radio, Herm lent Jack $50 to go to San Francisco to get started in his radio career. And I asked Herm, Herm was a dear, dear friend of mine, I said, Herm, did he ever pay you back? And, and Herm said, absolutely he did. But he says, I gave him his first 50 bucks to get started in, in radio. <laughs> as, as you read about Jack Webb, you, you find little stories like that. And I mentioned his growing up in, in the depression and, and money being tight. So, and, and yet he found a way to get himself 
to San Francisco and capitalize on, on radio opportunities in San Francisco. What can you tell us about that portion of his life? Well, then, you know, it was very hit and miss back then. He was a struggling radio actor. I mean, that's uh, at that time, it was, you know, right after the war. So he was a struggling radio actor. Several of the shows he put together, like Pat Novak for Hire, and then he did some comedy. Most people don't realize, on a personal note, he had a huge sense of humor. I mean, if anybody doubts that, watch the Johnny Carson special with the uh, cleaning woman, Clara Clifford. Uh, right. See them go back and forth on that. Johnny was a good friend of his, so you can see him there uh, that he had a, a, just an incredible sense of humor. He started off in radio, as you know, and then progressed to television, and then progressed to the silver screen. So uh, it was always a progression with him. And once he got to where he was going, he was always looking for the next project, the next movie, the next hit, the next television series. And even during all of that, he was still producing other shows, such as ones you probably haven't heard of or maybe don't even remember. Uh, Sam was a show that he produced in the 70s, and that was with Mark Harmon. It was about a policeman and his police dog. Today, it would go over very well. Back then, uh, as I mentioned, if I recall, it was up against, like, the Waltons, or it was up against a really tough time slot. It was very short-lived. It was only on, like, maybe a, a few months and the ratings weren't there with it. But uh, he did a lot of projects like that, and he was always looking for the next hit, always. I'd like to get your thoughts on the similarities and the differences between Dragnet Radio, the 1950s television series, and the coming back to it in the 1960s. Right. Well, one of the biggest differences, as you know, in the Dragnet 1960s episodes, he always wanted to keep it fresh, updated, and even though uh, you'll see some of those radio shows were also done in television, the 60s series dealt a lot more with the current situation of a lot of drugs and the drug culture and how that was not so prevalent in the 50s as it was in the 60s, as we know, especially the late 60s. He wanted to address what was happening at that time. And so you'll notice the 50s episodes, there are some episodes regarding drugs in the 50s. However, when you get to the 60s, it's not Leave it to Beaver anymore. It's more of the counterculture that was going on and, and, and exploding at that time. So you'll see how he transitioned to keep things current, you know, with his programming and his shows like Adam 12. Uh, there really wasn't a series that was specifically like that either. And they had to deal with a lot of those counterculture things that was happening at the time back then. That's why you'll notice the, the biggest difference I can say between the 50s and 60s episodes are, you know, the 50s might be who stole grandma's cookies versus or who murdered who versus the 60s was a lot more of the drug culture and a lot of the things and changes that were happening in the late 60s which he addressed and hit head-on, again, ahead of his time on that. Uh, even to this day, his shows are still definitely have an effect on Hollywood. Uh, I mean, look at the people that he influenced. He influenced, well, Aaron Spelling was in a lot of the uh, 50s episodes mm -hmm. uh, in Dragnet, but he started so many careers. As we spoke earlier, I mentioned Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf 
pays total homage to Jack Webb and the way he did Dragnet and how Law and Order was done. After Dragnet shut down the, the second time in, in 1970, I'm thinking of the Dragnet film from 1987 with uh, Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. And then on Nick at Night on cable television. Yeah. So it seems like there has been a continuing audience and you still see emergency on television. You still see Adam 12 on television, a continuing audience for what he produced. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they were good shows. And the thing with a lot of his programs, uh, the whole family could sit down and watch them. They weren't offensive. And I, I think people appreciate that these days. The grandparents can flip on a show with the grandkids, and they know it's going to be something that they all can watch together. Words that I keep seeing in association with Jack are tough, kind, loyal, perfectionist. How does that come across in the different shows? Well, you can see the disciplinarian he was in his shows, uh, the accuracy for detail. He was so accurate that when he would put a set together or have a set put together, for the show, he would find out what color paint the LAPD used, where did you get that, and that is what he would paint his walls. So he was very accurate on his shows. They were believable. They were real. The people were real. That's the thing about it. It was everything. He wanted to keep everything real, and it was. He would get the same desks that the LAPD used. Everything had to be the same. It had to be right. It had to be accurate. And you'll see that in our DVD series where Peggy talks about that. She speaks on... It had to be accurate. It's got to be right. And he didn't stop until it was correct, the way he wanted it. It had to be accurate. On a personal level, that's how he was as well. But he also had a very humorous side. At home, he would smile a lot. Jackie has shared many stories. They used to have dinner parties quite often where they would have every musician who was in town would be over at their house for a dinner party. I happen to have one of these guest lists that they have in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read a couple names here that uh, okay. of people that would attend them. Uh, Lucille Ball, Steve McQueen, Dick Van Dyke, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Julie and Bobby Troop. Same way with musicians. Peggy Lee would come over to the house. Eddie Fisher would come over to the house. They would have dinner parties, and they would just socialize. He would uh, associate himself with a lot of the musicians, so you'd see musicians, and they'd be sitting around playing the piano. And something else that most people uh, don't realize is, although he was divorced from Julie, mm -hmm. he remained very, very close with her and Bobby, and he would even go over to their house at Christmas time. So how many people spend Christmas with their ex-wife and her husband. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on why we haven't seen what I like to call the, the big book, you know, a, a, a real big dive into Jack Webb's career? It seems like he has been overlooked for mm -hmm. many years, which was uh, one of the other reasons we did this book. It was obviously to pay tribute to him, but it seems like in a lot of documentaries you will see this show and this show and that person but they skip over him and uh, that's why we felt it was necessary to at least acknowledge all of his accomplishments and the way he did his mark seven productions and the style and everything we, we wanted to kind of embellish that a little bit and bring that to the audience with a side of 
him that was personal. So it would be, if Jack was going to sit down and write a book, which he would have never done, how would it have come out? And that's what we tried to put together with this. It was not only his career, but a lot of his personal thoughts, stories, and failures. We showed the failures as well. Uh, Like the Army Air Corps, he wanted to be a pilot so bad, but he failed miserably at it, and it really bothered him. You mentioned Mark 7 Limited, and Mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time in various aspects of baseball during my career, and I don't know if I just got this into on my head or read it somewhere, that there's a connection between Jack wearing badge number 714 and the fact that Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs. But I've also read that he was fond of the number seven. So can you help me out with the real story there? I have read that as well about Babe Ruth's record. Jack was a baseball fan. However, the 714, he did have a thing for sevens, and that was his lucky number. I asked several people this that were very closely associated with him, and they all had different stories. Sort of like three people witnessing an accident, you're going to ask them a question, and they all saw it, but you're going to hear three different stories. That is kind of what we've gotten over the years because I have asked this question so many times from wives to business partners to associates to colleagues to secretaries to everybody I've asked this question. So I'm going to give you an abbreviated answer as to what we gathered by this. Seven was his lucky number, and seven and 14 is seven, seven, and seven. So he liked that number, and he considered that his lucky number. Now, Mark 7, we were told, was named after a Mark 7 Jaguar. And the Limited, he thought, sounded very ritzy. And Limited, he got the idea from where his uncle, Frank, also in Dragnet, worked at a clothing store in San Francisco. It was Robert Kirk Limited. And he told Jackie, it sounds like a very classy place. So that's what I wanted to put on the end of my company, was limited. So that's where the Mark 7 came from, to the best of our knowledge. Mm -hmm. And again, the 714, depending on what you read, that's what you're going to kind of find there, is several different stories, all from people who are associated with him. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about two of the folks you interviewed on the uh, supplement for the Dragnet 1968 box set one who goes back a long ways with Jack, and that's Herb Ellis. What can you tell me about Herb Ellis? Herb uh, was a dear friend, and what a fantastic guy. He he was just uh, a great, great guy. And uh, he goes back to Jack all the way back to teenage years, maybe 16, 17 years old. So he knew Jack from all the way up. He is actually the guy that helped develop Dragnet with Jack Webb. He he was working on a show, and that's when they were on the set of He Walked By Night. Jack said, hey, what about that radio show you've been working on about the detective? And he says, oh, you mean Joe Friday? And he says, yeah, that guy. Herb and Jack developed that together and pretty much came up with Dragnet, the inception of it, together. So it wouldn't be fair to just say it was just Jack that came up with Dragnet. It was actually Herb Ellis and Jack. And according to Herb, I asked him, I said, why didn't you stay in there with him on this as his partner? Well, if you look, they look very similar. And Herb told me, he said, we needed a Mutt and Jeff look, meaning somebody that was kind of opposite Jack Webb, because in the long shots, okay, is that Herb or is that Jack in there? So that's why he was only a short time and a short-lived partner in the series. 
So there's a there's a behind the scenes story for you on that. Well, that's great. And he walks by night. It's an excellent film, and for people that want to get a little more sense of where Dragnet comes from, I think they'd very much enjoy watching that. Tell me about the other gentleman you interviewed for the DVD set, and that was Tom Williams. Tom Williams, what a fantastic guy and a comedian. He would do great voiceovers, too, just a a fantastic guy. He uh, met Jack uh, right before they did the Dragnet 66 movie, which is on the 68 DVD set, and he worked with Jack through all the late 60s and on Adam-12 and eventually became an executive producer on Adam-12 as well. They were really good pals, and Tom had 100 stories of going out with Jack and some of his funny stories, which he tells on the DVD set. I kind of loaded the questions I was going to ask him because I knew how he would break into his animated answers. Mm-hmm. So if you'll, notice, you'll notice there where he's kind of acting out some of the, the situations. Tom was a great guy and uh, worked with Jack for many, many years. Just a super guy. And he did a great impersonation of Harry Morgan. Yes, yes. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Jack's relationship with the Los Angeles Police Department. It was essential to Dragnet, but by the time Jack passed away, they gave him honors like they had given to no other civilian. Right, absolutely. Being out there so much amongst different uh, individuals from the LAPD, they told me a lot of stories where he would overhear them. This isn't even in our book. He would overhear somebody saying, hey, you know, the back of our building here has got a leaky roof. And they weren't saying it to asking him for anything. They were just speaking. And he would overhear them say, hey, we need a new back roof put on this building. And he would write him out a check for several thousand dollars and say, if that isn't enough, let me know. That is the relationship he had with them. He loved them and they loved him, obviously. You'll see several buildings out there dedicated to him. There's one that's the Jack Webb building out at the academy. And uh, it was just a very great mutual relationship. What a public spokesman to have for the LAPD than his show. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing today and to what extent you're still involved with the Jack Webb story. Actually, I have a site called Jack Webb Archives, and I have over 8,000 negatives from the set, from, from home, taken by the poolside, having a drink, those type of things. And I put a lot of stories, personal stories, uh, with those. And it's called Jack Webb Archives, and it's on Facebook. And I usually post something about daily. I also feature some Adam-12, some emergency, but it's mainly focused on personal stories about him or his daughter, who I was very close with, uh, Stacy. She was quite a card. She used to, um, I'll just put it this way, she used to say that, uh, well, maybe I gave him a few of the gray hairs that he got. Uh, (laughs) She she would, uh, for example, she liked to live life and used to skydive. But she didn't want him to know it. So, for example, she broke her leg while she was skydiving. Well, she could never tell him she was skydiving. So instead, he said, well, how did you break your leg? And she she said, well, I was out dancing and I slipped on the floor. And she says, I broke my leg. So there was a lot of things like that that, you know, she kind of kept from him for his own good. People may have thought Jack Webb was very square and very not hip. But in reality... He was very hip. He knew all the latest music. He bought both of his daughters tickets to go see the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. You know, mm-hmm. that was one of their presents was, hey, I'm going to get to go see the Beatles. 
he was very hip on things, although he may not have been portrayed that way, he really was. And he knew uh, a lot of the music of the 60s. He was a fan of some of it, too. Stacy told me a story where she was over to his house one day, and on his big stereo system, he's got Sgt. Pepper's from the Beatles blasting. So... Uh-huh. <laughs> Who would ever well, think Sergeant know, Friday, you know? You wouldn't, and I think that is the image. And yet, going back to his earliest days, and I've mentioned where he did a comedy radio show, but I think there is that image of Jack Webb, maybe it's more the image of Joe Friday as a square kind of guy, and I think you've done a lot to dispel that. So I just want to thank you so much for taking time to talk about Jack here on Where Have You Gone? Absolutely, Morris. It's a pleasure. Like I said, if if you want to see any pictures or hear a lot of personal stories, check out the Jack Webb Archive site. Uh, Like I said, I nearly post something daily. A lot of these are negatives that have never been seen before from right directly from Mark 7. So there are a lot of Mark 7 stuff here from the 60s and from the 50s and a lot of personal. So if you, it's a really good backdrop to see his personal side, which is what this site is pretty much dedicated to. After a short break, I'll have a bit more about Herb Ellis and some others who helped and were helped by Jack Webb. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten or forgotten but not gone with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Here's a bit of information about some of the people that had an influence on Jack Webb's life and career, and vice versa. Richard Breen's writing talents were fundamental to the success of Jack Webb and contributed to numerous radio, television, and film productions from 1948, when he was 30 years old, up to his untimely death in 1967. At that time, Webb called Breen the single most influential person in my life. Breen won an Oscar with Charles Brackett and Walter Reich for the screenplay of the 1953 film Titanic and was nominated for the 1948 screenplay of the Billy Wilder film A Foreign Affair, written by Breen, Brackett, and Wilder, and the 1963 screenplay for Captain Newman, M.D., written with Phoebe and Henry Efron, the parents of Nora, Amy, Delia, and Haley Efron. He was the first WGAW president. That's Writers Guild of America West. He wrote the screenplay for the 1954 and 1966 film versions of Dragnet, Pete Kelly's Blues, and one of my favorite films, Tony Rome, starring Frank Sinatra. He was, along with Brackett, 
the first recipient of the Edmund H. North Award in 1967. Here's the description of the award at the WGA website. Presented to those members whose courageous leadership, strength of purpose, and continuing selfless activity on behalf of the Guild through the years, as well as professional achievement of the highest order, have served to establish the Writers Guild of America as a pillar of strength and security for writers throughout the world. The Edmund H. North Award has only been presented another 11 times since it was received by Brackett and Breen, most recently to Faye Kanan in 2005. The award was named in North's honor after his death in 1990. Breen was just 48 years old when he died on February 1, 1967. Herb Ellis was born in Cleveland, Ohio on January 17, 1921. He has 86 acting credits at IMDb, the Internet Movie Database. The vast majority were on television, but he also had small roles in two of the great films of the 1960s, Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie and Blake Edwards' The Party. When Herb Ellis passed away in 2018... The Spurdvac radiogram devoted its cover of its February 2019 issue, volume 43, number 3, to Herb Ellis. It has a nice picture of Mr. Ellis and says in the bottom right-hand corner, Herb Ellis, 1921 to 2018. Spurdvac is the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy. And the cover story article is by Stuart Wright. It originally appeared in 2007 in a series of biographical sketches for the Radio Historical Association of Colorado. There are numerous references to Jack Webb in Wright's article. He talks about how Ellis met Webb at a party after Ellis had moved to California, and they developed an enduring friendship. They worked together on a 1941 murder anthology series titled A Half Hour to Kill that aired on the Los Angeles City College radio station. They worked together at station KGO in San Francisco, Herb as an announcer, disc jockey, and newscaster, along with Webb and future film star Lee Marvin. Ellis and Webb worked on the drama One Out of Seven, the series based on a top news story of the week. When Dragnet came along, Ellis did the announcing on the audition show and frequently appeared on the radio version and played the role of Officer Frank Smith before Ben Alexander took over that role. He also directed Dragnet during its last years on radio. Herb Ellis died in San Gabriel, California, December 26, 2018, at the age of 97. Stan Freeberg is probably best known for Stan Freeberg Modestly Presents, The United States of America, Volume 1, The Early Years a record album released in 1961. 
He was a Grammy Award winner, an Emmy Award nominee, and won more than 20 Clio Awards for excellence in advertising. He's been called the father of the funny commercial. In 1953, Freeberg recorded a parody of Dragnet titled St. George and the Dragonnet. It was released by Capitol Records and shot up to number one on both the Billboard and Cashbox record charts and sold over one million copies in the first three weeks. It's a classic. Freeberg did another Dragnet parody titled Yulenet or Dragnet Christmas in 1954. Webb was reportedly a fan of Freeberg's, and there's evidence that he had a pretty good sense of humor. The parody, St. George and the Dragonnet, certainly helped stand Freeberg's career, and it probably had a positive impact on Dragnet and Jack Webb's career. Peggy Lee. According to James Gavin's biography of Peggy Lee, Is That All There Is? The Strange Life of Peggy Lee, Jack Webb was a big fan of her singing and wanted her to play the part of Rose Hopkins in the film version of Pete Kelly's Blues. She accepted the offer. On February 18, 1956, Lee was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Alongside Natalie Wood, Marissa Pavan, Betsy Blair, and Joe Van Fleet, Peggy Lee is an American singing legend And in addition to Pete Kelly's Blues, she was also the lead voice in Walt Disney's animated 1955 film, Lady and the Tramp, that also included the voice of Stan Freeberg. Despite her great success on screen in 1955, Lee never made another film, and just a handful of appearances in dramatic television shows. When Pete Kelly's Blues came out in 1955, Jack Webb was married to Dorothy Town, his second wife. Webb had been married to Julie London from July 19, 1947 to March 24, 1954. They began dating in 1941, when he was 21 and she was 15. A biography of London, Go Slow, The Life of Julie London by Michael Owen, doesn't portray a happy marriage, although they had two children and on the surface appeared to be the ideal Hollywood couple. When they were newly wed, London's career as an actress was slowly building, and Webb was enduring the frustrations of looking for a big break in radio and film. Webb got that break with Dragnet. Jack was obsessed with work, and Julie became a housewife. The marriage ended with a separation in 1953 and divorce in 1954. After the divorce, Webb and London both achieved great success. He with Dragnet, she in film and television, and as a singer with 32 record albums. Her best-known song, Cry Me a River, on her 1955 debut album, Julie Is Her Name, stayed on the Billboard charts for 20 weeks, peaking at number 13. In 1959, London married the singer, songwriter, actor Bobby Troop. Bobby Troop may be best known as the writer of the great song, Get Your Kicks on Route 66. The acting was minimal for Bobby Troop until the mid-1960s when Jack Webb revived Dragnet. According to the biography of Julie London, Webb and Troop became great friends and were even business partners in the China Trader restaurant in the Los Angeles suburb of Toluca Lake. Webb cast Troop in the pilot film Dragnet 1966 
and several episodes of the 1967 to 1970 television series. When Webb developed the television series Emergency, he cast Troop as Dr. Joe Early and London as Nurse Dixie McCall, R.N. They remained on Emergency from the start in 1972 to the end in 1978. London and Troop remained married until his death in 1999. She died a year later on October 18, 2000. Harry Morgan is probably best known to a generation as Colonel Sherman T. Potter on the television series MASH from 1974 to 1983, and to another is Officer Bill Gannon on Dragnet from 1967 to 1970, a role he reprised in the 1987 film Dragnet. Morgan spent six decades acting in film and on television, from 1942 to 1999. He made important contributions to many important films, including The Oxbow Incident, All My Sons, Holiday Affair, High Noon, The Glenn Miller Story, Inherit the Wind, and The Shootist, along with one of my all-time favorites, Viva Max. One of the most famous of the Dragnet episodes is The Christmas Story, also known as The Big Little Jesus. There are three versions of that story. The radio version can be found at archive.org. The 1953 television version, Season 3, Episode 17, can currently be found on YouTube. And the 1967 version of the story, The Christmas Story, is part of the DVD box set Dragnet 1968, Season 2, That set also includes the bonus feature, Jack Webb, the man behind Badge 714, as Daniel Moyer interviews Peggy Weber, Tom Williams, and Herb Ellis. If you're a fan of the 1960s episodes of Dragnet, as I am, One of the reasons may be the speeches or lectures Joe Friday gave from time to time. It's interesting to consider some of those more than 50 years after they were written and spoken. Keep an eye out for the athletes who show up in some of those episodes, including Rafer Johnson, John Roseborough, and O.J. Simpson. And the up-and-coming actors who went on to have outstanding careers, from G.D. Spradlin to Barry Williams. And I hope you'll remember that Joe Friday is just one of the roles of Jack Webb, and that you'll check out some of the others from his great career. Thanks again to Dan Moyer for joining me. Be sure to check out his Jack Webb archive on Facebook. I'm Morris Eckhouse host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastricola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.